Hi, welcome to Payments and More, the Alive Show. I'm Nico, CEO of Alive. Each week, I will have a chat with successful women and men from the payment industry. We will speak about their business journeys and the lessons they learned. I will ask them to share their views, their opinion about the most relevant topics in payments and more. My aim is to bring you off the beaten track stories, views and perspective from a different angle to shed new light on what's hot in payment space and its future. We will go with the flow. Let's see where our guests take us. This is Payment and More. Enjoy the ride. Today, our guest is Mark Wallick. Mark took care of eBay Enterprise, Apple, Google fraud management in his career. Uh, what else, I should say? That's a volume of over $100 billion of dollars to manage every year. Uh, so I'm sure we learn a lot from Mark. Uh, Mark will share with us uh, his views on the dominance of data when it comes to fraud prevention, also, we'll hear about his opinion uh, around AI, orchestration, and all those buzzwords we are reading at the moment. Uh, on a more personal way, we'll also know why Mark is attending the Burning Mal Festival every year. So, Mark, welcome to our show today. Thanks for having me. No, thanks for waking up so early to be with us. We usually do this kind of interview with a drink. I don't know what's your favorite drink. What is a drink you're dreaming to have in your hand right now? <laughs> it's the drink and the location, but I'd probably go with Aperol Spritz right now and somewhere in, somewhere in Southern Italy. Okay, something simple. So 20 yeah. years of experience, nice, because we are only interviewing intelligent people in this show, so welcome to the club. Senior Director of Payment Fraud at eBay Enterprise, you've been heading the fraud prevention at Apple and iTunes, and you're now in charge of end-to-end -end conversion optimization of Google Payment Platform and Google Pay. If those companies will not exist, which company will you be working for right now? Let's say Google and Apple don't exist. Where will be Mark? Ha. I think Mark would be at some startup that is working on bringing paying customers into a new and, and democratized way of paying. So I don't know. I think that I spent a lot of time thinking about this. What should the payments industry look like? And how can I do something about that? You know, I've, I've, that's, that's, been, that's been on my mind a lot lately. If we could do it all again, what would it look like? Ah, um, great, great. So we'll speak about that. You know, at each of our show, we are giving an award to our guests. So this is your award moment. It's very easy because whoever attends has the award. But this is the only moment of the show where you cannot speak. And you just have to listen to us praising you. And I'm a bit fascinated because I know you for over 10 years. I know your ability to sit in the front row at 8 o'clock in the morning of every conference in the industry in order to learn. <laughs> but you also have this ability to stay in the bar very late, to share opinion and knowledge with the most junior people of those conferences. So now my duty is to try to squeeze this punch you have in the brain. But really, congratulations for that. It's very rare to see an individual, especially working at Google, able to share so much. I'm wondering, are you still learning? The question is, am I still learning? Yes, the answer very much so is yes. I'm actually very inspired by what's going on right now with a bit of the, the digital revolution and almost slightly worried, 
right? That yeah, there's 20 years in there. Now while while the industry isn't going to fix itself in the next three years or change, right? Big you know steer a big ship around and make a change in that time. But I I do I do get a sense that the payment industry in even a decade's time is going to look drastically different. And we all need to understand and learn what's going on so that not only are we all relevant, but we're helping, right, to help steer that ship. Everybody grabs a piece of the wheel. So that's a great statement you're doing. Let, let's try to dig a little bit. So when I hear about this kind of statement, some will say, let's start with this. There is more and more data available in the market. You've been working for very rich companies. I don't know if it's uh, because it's easier, <laughs> but no data, no fraud prevention will be the first conclusion. Is it more easy when you have a lot of data like at Google, Apple, or eBay? There's no doubt about it. Having more data makes, makes decision-making easier. I would say that in the end, I think that it doesn't really matter in the eyes of the networks, in the eyes of the issuers, if we're talking about credit cards, we still seem to make mistakes. There are problems that, that data can't solve, like friendly fraud, first party fraud, however you look at it, that ultimately impact businesses, impact customers, and impact everybody's bottom line. So while we, I have enjoyed significant amount of data advantage over lots of merchants around the world, I still, like in the case of PSD2, I still will have to do what everybody else does. I still have my fraud rates. I still have false declines. I still have everything that everybody else has. So I have a question because there is a bit of confusion here. Some people are saying, okay, let me outsource everything. I may, I may have only a fraud manager in-house and you, know, you have some specialists to do that. Or I should bring a maximum in-house in order to control because I'm the one knowing better my business. What's your position on that? I think that if you have the ability, so there's two things, especially from the eBay point of view, I, I certainly enjoyed having been the fraud solution provider, so to speak. We did it for all of our, our merchants. All of these merchants that we did business with were considerable in size for their industry, or at least from a, from a brand point of view. But at the end of the day, the transaction volume really isn't going to be so great. Right. There are a few giant companies that have the ability to see enough transactions that running a risk engine that's in-house makes sense and is effective. I really enjoyed the fact that over 100 different clients worked with us and I could watch fraudsters move through them. Right? They were like, especially in the sporting goods industry or the, or the apparel industry, the customer or the fraudsters rather, sorry, they would try every single one. And we ran risk for all of them, right? So it was, it was, a, it was a good thing to see because we saw it in aggregate. Um, and aggregate is really what you need, right? You need volume and, and you really need an end-to-end -end team. It's one thing that I've learned about building internal risk solutions, that you have to have a commitment for not just the data sciences and, and the data collection, which is tremendous and very hard to do to pull data from all different points within your company, but then tools and then adjustments, right? It's, it's, very, it's, it's very hard. So in my estimation that I, I would reserve in housing unless you're really, really have a dedicated team budget and you have size in transaction volume. So to push a little bit more on that direction, 
you know, there is this recurring thought in the industry. In 2010, people were already speaking about, you know, when an insurance company will insure fraud and we can focus on our business. Is it a little bit what's happening with those chargeback warranty company, for example? That's the discussion of the moment. Should I invest in fraud prevention, external solution, outsource, etc., or just hand over for a fee all the responsibility to somebody else? And I know, I know you invented <laughs> quite early at EV chargeback warranty, right? Because it seems something yeah. new, but it's not new at all. <laughs> Explain me a little bit about that. I was going to say, well, back in 1999, when our model was, you know, for payment processing, you paid us X percent and you didn't worry about a thing. It was not my surprise, but I, I smiled a bit when, when somebody came by and said, hey, you know, what are you thinking about this? And it's <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, I, I think that had an anniversary, a couple decade anniversaries. I think it's a logical thing, right? I stand behind it. I, I managed it for over 11 years. I think that it makes a lot of sense. If, if the economics are there, it can make a lot of sense. I have seen companies that have said, hey, give us all of your fraud decline transactions. We will reevaluate them. And if we approve them, you have no chargeback liability. I think that was like maybe a decade and a half ago. I don't even know if, if that model still exists. But the price points were super high. And, you know, it's like I'm not looking for sales recovery. I'm looking for solid first run decisions. And at a reasonable price. And just to kind of give some examples of that, the some of our largest clients back then, they negotiated with us a cost plus model, right? So it really depends on what you want. But I think that, that folks in general would most likely negotiate pretty heavily to have the business come through in this model. But yeah, totally. So the, no, I'm sorry, and the, last, the last point on that is, is because, and this is what I'm focused on and have been for the last four or five years, the incentives need to be aligned on this as well. And you really have to, you know, your job then becomes making sure that that company is not declining to protect their margin, right, on the business. So false declines is one of the biggest things in the industry right now. And it's in both internal because of inefficiency, also because of this model and external because of the cost of processing all this fraud. So on one hand, you have this temptation for merchant to go with a chargeback warranty solution. On the other hand, you have dozens of new players in the fraud prevention area trying to sell their solution to merchants. They are all different. The market is crowded. What's the latest technology that, you know, got your attention lately? I think merchants are confused. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I don't know that I can be an authority in vendor selection right now as far as, as that goes. And then as technology goes, the thing that obviously is around is everybody can do ML and if not ML, because apparently ML is machine learning, by the way, is almost an old technology from the buzzword point of view. Artificial intelligence is the new thing. And I think that people really need to pay closer attention to what is meant by that with these vendors and what they're actually doing. And I don't know that, I think the problem is, is that I don't know if merchants, and particularly the folks that are that are making decisions on, on who to partner with, understand what that is. And I don't want to sell anybody short, but I look at the millions of merchants, right, that, that we have just in, in, in the U.S. alone. If they're all making selections, what do they actually do? I'm not quite sure that that's, that's something that they need to necessarily understand in their everyday life. So back to your question, I, I really don't know how to best answer that. So you have all those players. You have some players that are going the wrong way. We, we saw this month the case of NS8, for example, but 
I'm not uh, judging the technology here, but their CEO yeah. who ran away. That's, that's a sad news for, for the industry. What we observe as well is that the card schemes are acquiring every month a new fraud prevention technology. We've seen that, you know, being MasterCard, Certify Visa. There is a race for acquiring these providers. I don't know if Ikata will be the, the next one. Do you think there is a strategy there or is just let's get them while they are available? I know you're close to the card schemes. I would say that there's definitely a strategy. I've seen it play out very specifically, not with fraud per se, but with the chargebacks component of the transaction ecosystem. And if you, if you think about it, one of the things that I like to talk about is, is if you follow the dollar as it goes through the transactions, who's benefiting off the dollar? How much money is, is everybody making off of $1 going through the system? The networks, the processors, the vendors, you know, your solution providers that are adding a service, how much of that dollar are you actually getting because of, because of the costs? And then conversely or inversely, how much money is everybody benefiting off of that dollar? And I think that as companies that are out there become larger and they eat a lot of margin away from networks and processors and the like, you see that naturally there's an acquisition opportunity to say, how can we get more of the dollar? Simply stated. So do you think it's a chicken and egg because large part of the market think that the schemes should be accountable fully for the fraud in the system? At the end of the day, over the last 20 years, they did not manage. They, they seem to be a follower. Do you think they are turning into, uh, let's say, challengers of the rest of the market or just so, reactive? Yeah, so the, to, your, to your first question, I don't think that the network should be responsible for fraud. I think that the networks should be responsible for policies that help both merchants, everybody in the ecosystem that stands to lose anything, right? to help them develop proper solutions. I, I worry about the inverse and that this is a, this can be a for-profit situation, right? I, I worry about networks or schemes benefiting from the problem that is fraud online, almost to a point where if you can't beat them, join them. Like the problem's too hard, we, sh we should just make money off of it. That's a very dangerous thought. But I, I, I really stand by the idea that, that the networks really should be working very hard to develop either policies or methodologies. You know, we could talk about data only transactions, you know, in concert with 3D Secure. Let's do something bigger, better, or something along those lines that kind of brings things forward into, you know, the 2020s, the 2030s, whatever you want to talk about, but, but, but something a bit more advanced. And, and I think that they have a position and uh, a sense or an actual point of power, right, that, that would usher those things forward. I struggle a bit, to be frank, with one of the networks that has, on the outside, has done a really good job of developing lots of tools and solutions. And they're proposing things left and right. Hey, you know, put this in the message or, you know, use this API alongside of the authorization message and send this information or let's, let's repurpose the 3D secure rails and do something different. And we can drive down false declines and we can drive down fraud and we can shift liability and we can do these things. And, and it's like, this is exciting. Okay, so you're doing what I'm hoping. And then they turning around and saying, and it's gonna cost you. And I'm gonna lower 
the fraud thresholds and say that if you can't dance under the stick, then I'm going to start enforcing that you need to use my products for which I'm going to charge you. And I'm like, hmm, I don't know. Seems a little, seems a little disingenuous. That's what I'm worried about. I think that they are a governing body. I think that they have an opportunity to be at the center of innovation for the modern problems that are associated with card not present transactions. But I don't think that they should be necessarily profiting specifically from that. Does that make sense? So here, I, I feel that you're dying to arrive to our next section, that is a golden minute, your golden <laughs> minute. Let's say you're the president of the fraud and payment industry, global president, big boss, and you're addressing your uh, peers and your players, and this includes card schemes in front of an audience of 10,000 people. What will be in one minute your call to action for the industry? Well, if you remember Apple's 1984 commercial, I think it might start out looking a bit like that. I will start with how I see my career. And I don't know if this, this, how this will translate into, into your golden minute question, but I have, in, in the 20 years now, I've arrived at like, hey, I, I really want to fix this problem of the cards business. I want to fix the false declines. I want to fix the, you know, the pendulum swings between authorization and fraud. And, and I want to fix the data sharing. And I want to fix all these things. And I want to make the card business, you know, just normalized and not inflamed. And because we need to work on those things. And then once that's all fixed, I want to burn it to the ground. <laughs> when when PSD2 came out, the directed like this 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 notice came out, and we all just freaked out about the credit card side of it. Can you believe we have to go backwards and do this draconian thing of challenging everybody like we did, you know, in, in, you know, at least from the Americas? It's like, oh, we tried this thing in 2003 and four, it was horrible, and now you're saying. We've got to go do this for everybody. Don't you realize, you know, we have all this information. But I started to peek at the other side of it, the open banking side of it. And, and then I went back and I started reading about the, you know, why PSD2, right? Fraud is broken. Caught fees are there. You know, the, the compromises are innumerable and never stopping. And I was like, and then I started looking at the open banking. And I'm looking left at the, at the problem, looking right at the open banking solution. I'm like, you know what? Why aren't we building something new? The credit card, the piece of plastic that everybody has was a proxy for your money. It's a proxy. Your money is sitting in a bank account and that card is dumb. Well, now it has a chip. Maybe it's a little bit smarter, but the card itself doesn't do anything but get the money from A to B. That, that's the absolutely right. refreshing to hear somebody in favor of PSD2. I'm super glad to have you on the show today. <laughs> 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 the, the other part of PSD2, the other part, the other part. So, but now your device, your watch, a ring, your phone, whatever has, you know, is the new card in my mind. And it's, and it's, you know, so, so why do you need a card anymore? The rails, you know, we have become to rely upon these card rails. And while they, we've built all of these tools, the fraud solutions da, 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 on top of them, they are still, they run at, you know, plus one, T plus one, depends on the country. It could be T plus 30. You don't see your money. All these, all these processes that take place between the processors and the issuers and the issuer processors and then all these people, when today you can just have a simple set of instructions. I want to send Nico 500 euros. And within a blink of an eye, the money's there. And, you know, build solutions around that. 
it's at least in Europe, it's going to be super cheap. The rest of the world is, is looking at Europe, you know, the, the Latin America, Central Asia, everywhere, even the U.S., right? It's like, how can we change how we move money? How can we change? How can we build something with new rails, new technology, and focus on the future of data? And as we described, all of a sudden, maybe everybody can have data available to them to be able to use in a, in a transaction message. That was a very long minute, but a very rich one, Mark. So thank you yeah. for that. So Mark, you manage 120 products, over 200 countries, 200 forms of payment, millions of daily purchases, hundreds of billions in annual money move, billions of customers at your recent position. And suddenly, Mark, during his career, is saying, I'm tied with fraud prevention. Let's dive into acceptance optimization. Did you start with a blank page of paper to do that? <laughs> That's quite a challenge, right? Yeah, basically. My, it came down to one year I was doing planning. Just to be fair, I, I had, even back in my eBay slash GSI days, I had grown a bit tired of doing risk. And just to give you a little 50 cent tour of this little segment is, uh, so I started working on, on, on payments proper. And then Apple called and said, hey, we would really love to, to, to talk with you about this risk opportunity. And I said, I had just finished with risk. I was taking a break, not from this acceptance point of view, but in general. And so when I fix your fraud problem, can I go do something else? And, and it turns out, no, you know, you, you get hired for a job that's your job. Google comes along. And I'm doing, I'm, I'm working on the play, Google Play Risk. And, and I realized in this planning point of view, I'm trying to garner resources and money and, and the like so that I can continue my, my, my work. And I'm looking at it and I'm just not getting it. And I look around and I say, you know what? I started doing the math and I'm like, I am working super hard to get a chargeback rate reduced by 20%, 15%, whatever it may be. And in, in the grand scheme of where a company puts their money, you know, that's not necessarily where it's going to go. They want to go to go to growth. And so then I started looking at this and I said, you know, wait a minute. If I were to, to add 15 or 20 percent to the total authorization rate, it far outweighs the reduction of the chargeback rate by the same ratio. And let me go see what's causing that problem. And from there, it was like, oh, it was a blank sheet to start writing down problems. And I ended up writing pages. Look at all the things that are happening for Google in particular. Look what's happening within the industry in particular. And I was like saying the like, same thing, follow the dollar and see what happens when a decline takes place. What do customers do next? Do they stay with the bank? Do they switch a bank? Do they stay with us? Do they go to a different merchant? Like what happens in the unhappy path? And, and then why? And then what do our systems do? And it turned out that within maybe a quarter, I had 23 projects that amassed a program that I said, hey, instead of doing risk and trying to reduce the fraud, which is doing really good, right? we, we've got a good handle on it, and a lot of it's family fraud, so really can't do very much there. Why don't we focus on these things and see if we can't outpace some of these losses and shrink it naturally while actually having a good story where we're, we've grown our top line? And I guess the rest is history. Wow. So something you must have done very good because I read recently that Google Pay became the most downloaded app in August 2020, up to 77% in India. 
So congratulations for that. We are reaching the end of the show. So, you know, we have this famous section about the box game. You're going to participate. This is very simple for the first time listener. I have a box on my desk. Inside this box, there is something related to our industry. Listeners have to guess what's inside the box. If they guess correctly, they will win a week of holiday in Ibiza for two people from anywhere in the world. <laughs> you, you have the opportunity to help them. So you have one question. You can ask me one question about what's inside the box to help the auditors. Mm. The entire industry is listening to you because there is a lot of buzz about what's inside my box. Oh, this is unfair. One question. Okay. I, my assumption is, is lots of people get to ask the questions and I have no idea of previous questions asked, um, but I am hopeful that you will have shared these for subsequent attendees. The, the only way to know the other uh, question and answer is to listen to the other podcast we have listed. Got it. All right. My one question is, what are the dimensions of the box? Ah, that's a very clever question. So the box is 20 centimeters by 20 centimeters by 10 centimeters. Okay. Hopefully that's helpful. The, you can give a try at the answer. Any auditor can give a try by posting the correct answer on LinkedIn. And this is where all the debate is taking place, where you can have some tips. So go to our LinkedIn page or send us a private message through our website and win the opportunity to go on holiday to Ibiza for two. I'm getting to the end of the show now. I wanted to be a little bit more personal with you. First thing, when did you fail in your career? And you say, no, really, I did it wrong. <laughs> Very personal. Oh, yeah, and, and how many times and how fabulously did each of those failures come out? Uh, uh, pick, pick your award. <laughs> yeah, I think that my time at Apple was probably one of the harder points of my life. It was my first foray into Silicon Valley life. I had a lot of pressure personally to, to succeed at that. I had relocated my family. I had relocated everything. I'd moved away from family. And, and obviously, Apple is a very grand stage. I think that, that the space was hard. The dynamics were hard. And I wouldn't call it a failure, but I would, I would say that I learned a lot at Apple which I think has helped me succeed at Google. So, you know, we always disclose one of our guests' best kept secrets. So I know that people who want to meet you can either contact you on LinkedIn and you tend to answer and comment a lot of things on LinkedIn or to meet you at the Burning Man Festival every September. What is the addiction to Burning Man? Are you having a great time there or because there's no money involved in there's no way to pay, right, in Burning Man. <laughs> Nobody pays. You, 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 you give gratitude. So, yeah, it is, it is a wonderful I, – I can't, I can't recommend it enough in general because it is everything. It's a city, right? There's, there's, there's everything for everybody. But I love the, I love the communal nature of, of gifting and, and offering what you have and receiving a need, I think, is, is, is just a refreshing type of economy. I, I can only imagine how long it would last if it were real, but, uh, but it is nice to believe that in, in, in a 10-day stretch or more that you can witness humanity, creativity, just love, I guess, in the simplest sense of just, just you know, being able to be, with, to, to be with each other. 
and and to survive it all at a hundred and whatever degrees with you know eighty mile an hour dust storms, I think it's just fantastic. Well, that's fabulous. Well, thank you very much for being with us today, Mark. People can find you on LinkedIn or at the Burning Band. Then, last word yeah. of recommendation to the stakeholders listening to us: three words, four words. Three words, four words. Look at your data. Your data is going to tell you what's happening. I, I live and die by it. I think that, that it is the, your best way of, of maintaining objective decisions, whether it be in, in buying, uh, uh, partnering, approving, what have you. Look at your data. Thank you, Mark. Yes, thank you very much for having me. Thanks for joining Payments and More, the Alive Show. If you enjoyed the interview as much as we did, please share this podcast with your network. Leave us a five-star review, of course, and subscribe now to Payments and More in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This is the best way not to miss any episode with great guests. You can find more information about our guests today and how to connect in the show notes or on Ally's website. Last, I love to hear from you. Please let me know your suggestion for the next episodes, guests to interview, topics to address, or questions you'd like me to ask to our guests. In our Allies LinkedIn page or in the comment section of this podcast. See you in the next episode of Payments and More. I'm Nico. We are live. <laughs>